five seconds to submergence. Submergence deep into the absurd. Yeah, I was just, just going to say, I'm, I'm good with like long, for, or long form or open long form conversations that don't necessarily have a, a strict top, list of topics to go through, just kind of where the flow of conversation goes. Well, if you thought about it, this, that is what philosophers did. I mean, that's how philosophy started by people talking to each other. Have you heard that song, Keep Talking by Pink Floyd? I have not. So it, it, it starts with this Stephen Hawking uh, recording of him saying, millions of years ago, humanity was just like the animals. Then something happened that changed everything. We learned to talk. And that kind of, I don't know if you've gone into Nietzsche and have you read the gay science at all? But he kind of talks about how the, the origin or consciousness likely originated from speech and talking because it brought the our attention from the external world into the internal world. I don't know, uh, with your interest in psychology, I wanted to know what you thought about that. Yeah, well, um, I'm sure you're familiar with the work of uh, the famous or infamous Noam Chomsky, depending on your your take on him. But um, I think he's of the opinion that uh, language and thought are inextricably linked, that like the language's primary use is thought and that communication is of a secondary, um, uh, 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 secondary importance. Now, I think Steven Pinker and other linguists and, and cognitive scientists disagree with him on that. Um, but I, I suspect there's, I suspect he's probably right. Um, yes. I really can't separate language and thought in my own um, mind. Uh, I mean, maybe that's just because I'm a very, uh, I kind of think in words. Some people say they think in pictures or images or they think in numbers. And I'm more of a, a words guy. I really yeah. uh, kind of put sentences together in my head. And, and yeah. also I talk to myself all the time. And of course, being a podcaster, <laughs> I talk a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's sort of how I, and, and I think also um, you mentioned psychology. I think, um, you know, people, when, when they're growing up, children, they sort of um, learn their identity and learn about the world through talking to people and through sharing ideas yes. and getting feedback from their parents and grandparents and peers. Um, so I think I, I think I do agree with Chomsky on that. Cool. Yeah, I mean, I agree with him, too. I also think of the world in images and in words and in numbers, all those kind of interchangeably. But the thing is, uh, the thing is, uh, what we're doing here when we're thinking of images or we're thinking of numbers or we're thinking of words, we're thinking. And what happens when we think is that our attention is turned from the outside to the inside, right? Or what do you think? Uh, could you rephrase the question? Um. Yeah. Do you think that 
sure like even that uh images also and numbers are also a form of language mm. oh i see what you're saying um mm. that's a good question actually i haven't thought of before yeah i'm kind um, of being a little suggestive well, i guess here, thinking of but <laughs> I mean, I think it is helpful to think of math as a kind of language, since math is yeah. really just about um, uh, uh, relationships between things, I guess mm -hmm. is the simplistic way of putting it. Um, and then, and then um, images, I mean, if you think about like art, I mean, everything from like the, the primitive cave paintings or anthropologists have found to like, you know, actual more complex um, yes. Uh, uh, art created animation or, or paintings. Um, it, it all sends a message. Um, and it, 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 it um, so I guess if language is um, just a way of sending a message, a way of communicating um, something, an idea, a feeling, an experience, um, then we can broaden the word language to mean more than just, you know, the symbols that we use to, um, uh, to, to, to write things down. Um, yeah, because you're translating an idea or an action or a will into something else where when you look at it, that same thing is translated back into what they were thinking. Like when you see a cave painting of someone, of some stick figure holding a spear, you're thinking hunter, right? Uh, like they do that and they thought hunter most likely they wanted to communicate the idea of the hunter so that when people look at it, you see, Oh, that's a hunter. That's a guy holding a spear. Yeah. I mean, and I think, uh, probably the, um, so another interesting random psychology fact, you probably yeah, know, go for it. um, there is a, or there was an experiment they ran and I don't remember who the experiment or who ran it or what even, what it was they? even called, but Who's they, nah. <laughs> The, the gist of it was um, they were trying to see like at what age people become aware of um, uh, the, 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 aware of the fact they, that other people know something they don't. Um, so like chimpanzees, when they've been taught sign language, and, and I uh, basically still stole this from a, a Vsauce video. <laughs> dude, dude um, I was just but, about to say, do you um, watch Vsauce? <laughs> you little bastard in, in, a, in a Vsauce video um, uh, Michael um, mentions how when chimps were taught sign language have been taught sign, sign language um, the one thing they've never done is asked a question um, yeah. and this seems to be related to um, the way a three-year-old thinks about the world because yes. I think it's like um, when, when a three-year-old is asked, like they've given a, a, a you know, um, a, thought, a little thought experiment where like, you know, Sally has a cookie she put in a box and then her friend Lily also has a box, but no cookie in it. And then Sally leaves and uh, the leaves the room and Lily takes um, Sally's cookie and puts it in her box. And then when Sally walks in the room, they ask the three-year-olds, where is, uh, uh, where is Sally going to look for the cookie? And the three-year-olds say, well, obviously she's going to look in Lily's box because that's yeah. where the cookie is. But um, as, you know, adults or not even adults, as you get older, probably around five or six-ish, um, maybe four, uh, you realize, 
oh no, Sally doesn't know that Lily put the cookie in her box. Um, so Sally is still going to look for her cook for her cookie in her box. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, we're talking about language and its relationship with communication. Yes. Um, and, and I guess consciousness. Um, I suspect that the, also our social relations, like our ability to um, recognize another being um, in a, as a complex being, as a, recognize another being at a deeper level. Um, I think that's uh, uh, related to our need to communicate. Um, yes. If, if we just were programmed to like regard everyone else as just automatons. Yeah. Then language really wouldn't be necessary, I don't think. But obviously our evolution didn't program us in that way. Yeah. Because well, we're social, we're social beings, yes. we're social creatures. Yes, I mean, it's, it, it's our ability to distinguish things, recognize them, know what they are, know their dangers, know their advantages, um, just know what something is and uh, what it does in the world or what it means to you and being able to translate that thought to other people. Oh, and by the way, I have not introduced you yet. Oh, you're frozen. Um, for a while, like I'm, I'm Nietzsche's concept of. Mm. Hold up, you froze. I think you're back now. Yeah, yeah. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Um, oh yeah. I should probably introduce you. We've got Matthew Hazelwood here today on the Into the Absurd podcast. It's I was very excited to do this with you because uh since you contacted me i started listening to your podcast i did listen to the one with uh keegan uh on the nietzsche podcast that was that was good i appreciated that one and i've been listening to yours uh yours that you do with matt and it is really good i think it's one of my favorite podcasts right now <laughs> but uh yeah um for, for some reason I don't know if it's a spur of the moment, but I can't think of the name of the one you do with Matthew. Uh, uh, Beyond Talking Points, it's called. Yeah, Beyond Talking Points. Yeah. I don't know why. I was like literally just listening to it, but I listened to the COVID episode. The, the one with Midsummer was really good, uh, mainly because I, I watched the movie and I was thinking all those same things you guys were talking about. But uh and then I listened to the most recent one, I think. And then I listened to your most recent, uh, The Philosopher's Guide to the Apocalypse. And so, like, how did you get going on these podcasts? What made you start? Well, the, the, the first one, Beyond Talking Points, um, it happened just because um, I saw... Um, in like a little podcast subreddit i just saw matt yeah. like he had a little post and i think it actually at that point had been like a year old or something and no one had responded <laughs> to it um or maybe a couple people had and hadn't gone anywhere and i was just i saw this post he's like hey i want to do like a political podcast you know doesn't you don't have to agree with me politically so send me a message and i just sent him a message um and the rest is history as they say cool. um 
we both well we disagree most of the time but um we can find ourselves agreeing as well because neither of us are really neither of our positions or political philosophies or political views are really represented in the mainstream um which is think is something a lot of young people are experiencing they feel very uh disenfranchised and and disengaged from um the establishment you know republican versus democrat type of of uh politics um and then i started the second one uh the philosopher's guide to the apocalypse because um uh, other matt or matt keck um is he's more of a politics and economics guy although he does talk he's willing to talk of philosophy but he's more interested in the concrete than the abstract. And I often think yeah. more abstractly. So yeah, I, me too. I, this is some, some philosophical matters that I wanted to explore on my own um, that I just knew Matt wouldn't really be interested in. Um, the last episode of that podcast, in fact, I'm pretty proud of because um, I started exploring my, uh, my ideological shift. Um, yeah. Like when I started the podcast with Matt, I was pretty much a, a mainstream liberal with some differences yeah um i was like a, a secular talk almost young turks type <laughs> liberal yeah. i'm not as bad as that i like to think but um and i've just become I, I i don't really quite know how i would label myself right in this very moment but i know i'm really no longer the liberal that i used to be and so the last yeah. solo podcast i did was trying to chart my uh, uh change in my point of view yeah. Yeah. And you were talking about how, um, well, before I get into that, I just wanted to say that your guys' relationship, it's, that's probably the best part of the podcast, mainly because you guys kind of disagree on everything, but you also agree on everything at the same time. It's kind of, so I, uh, that's what makes it great. And you're kind of more like the, you're kind of like the open-minded person. He's kind of, like more closed-minded but it kind of works in a way where uh he's always like dude it's like this this and this and you're like uh maybe uh and then you'll say something then he'll disagree or he'll agree and yeah it's it's cool man i'd like to talk to him too too he's he sounds like a cool a cool guy but um anyways yeah i was just gonna say uh you were talking in that last podcast you did you're talking about how you kind of inherited your political viewpoints from your parents. And that's kind of what happened to me too. Cause I, cause uh, my mom, she's pretty Democrat and I grew up thinking, Oh yeah, Democrats. That makes sense. It's uh, it's like perfect. Uh, like, it's like, what are these Republicans talking about anyways? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like, it didn't make any sense to me growing up because I was so bombarded with the liberal ideology of um, just whatever the platform was, right? I was just so bombarded with that. And I was so, it was so ingrained in my mind that everything about the Republican platform was wrong and everything about the Democrat platform was right. And then as I, grew older I started to realize well that just ain't true like that's just not true at all um that there are so many good things about the republican platform 
And there are a lot of good things about the Democrat platform and there's terrible things about both of them that just doesn't work and it's too ideological. And I just, so like, how did that sort of happen for you as far as, was there a moment where you're like, uh, wait a minute, I, I feel like I've been lied to. Well, when I really first became like, I guess, interested in politics um, or more aware of politics, um, I was uh, getting it from, um, I was getting it from left-wing sources, but it was left, they were left-wing sources outside the mainstream. Yeah. So like I said, the Young Turks, Kyle Kalinske, the Humanist Report, things like that. Yeah. Um, which I, I like to think I've, <laughs> I've outgrown those as well, but yeah, I guess getting my introduction to politics from, you know, left, left-wing leftists who, um, we're still separate from the mainstream left wing. Um, it's sort of ingrained in me, I guess, an oppositional um, attitude of like, um, you know, we can fight for these principles, but we can do it outside the, um, the dichotomy that, you know, um, the, the, the Washington establishment give us every four years. Um, but as it w- there wasn't really a moment just as time grew on, as, as time went on. And I, as I grew and, and learned more and read more and talked to various people, um, I became more and more uh, aware that um, uh, aware that a lot of the um, people on the, a, a lot of like political commentators on the internet were lying to me that <laughs> a lot of them. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, of course the Washington establishment. Yeah. Or maybe not lying to you but not necessarily either telling you the full truth or saying things in a biased sort of way. No, I guess that, that's a fair way of putting it. It's not necessarily, I mean, I think a lot of talking heads, they believe what they say. <laughs> they yeah. just, yeah. they're not necessarily, well, this is another point that like, uh, uh, that Matt would probably bring up if you were in this conversation. He yeah. talks about, um, <laughs> Uh, the hidden truth and everything and how something can be technically true. But if you like dig deeper into it, there's like other aspects of the situation, which are um, to kind of go against that, you know, one talking point, which is why the, the our podcast is called beyond talking points. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, there really wasn't one moment where I was like, you know, kind of shattered, like, Oh, um, um, trust in um most people who talk about politics um and i'm able to see kind of the wizard behind the curtain more and more yeah um and i'm entertaining ideas that at one point might have seemed more like conspiratorial to me um than they do now um i mean i don't think you want to go outright conspiracy like i don't think you want to become a total conspiracy theorist but no. Nowadays, I almost think that you have to talk a little bit like a conspiracy theorist to fully get the big picture, if that makes sense. No, I know what you mean. Because uh, if you don't kind of, you got to like slightly open your mind to other ideas and other points of view. They might sound outrageous, but at least you're opening your mind to them, to them because they might be true, right? Because there's been so many conspiracy theories that have been true, right? Uh, and so you have to like 
take what people say with a grain of salt and kind of just digest it a little bit. Obviously, most conspiracy theories are probably wrong, especially the most popular ones, um, because the most popular ones are the most outrageous and people like them. Well, I mean, people like conspiracy theories because it gives one answer or one enemy or like a scapegoat or whatever to all their problems, when in reality, their problems are probably way more complex. So, I mean, that's why conspiracy theories are so appealing to people. Because it's, you know, it, if they just attack this one aggressor or they do this one thing, um, all their problems will be solved. It just, it, it just makes life seem simpler. Like God created the whole universe. Uh, that's, I mean, that's a conspiracy theory in a sense, because it sounds so, it, it sounds so simple. Like there was just this like old bearded man in the sky that created the universe. Uh, and he created me. And there's a heaven and a hell. And when you die, you go to one of those places based on whether you're good or bad. I mean, it's that's like a classic conspiracy theory where there's this simple thing that'll answer all your problems to death and life and meaning and everything. But yeah, sorry, I went on a tangent there. But you're right. You no, do no, have to be fine. you have to be a little bit of a conspiracy theorist to understand what's going on. Well, and I think also at the same time you have to we can't necessarily dismiss um, people who do believe in certain conspiracy theories yeah. as just totally stupid and idiotic and like beyond the pale. Um, uh, 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 because like, I mean, the example that kind of like, I guess I would use if, if, it, if any of our listeners um, were like, well, we won't like dive into the details about right now, but like in, in the, you know, the scandal with Jeffrey Epstein came out. Um, I thought to myself, like the people who believed in Pizzagate in the 2010s, like they are now <laughs> congratulating themselves. They're now being like, this was proof. Jeffrey Epstein is proof that we were right long before everyone else was. Yeah. Now I think that's a jumping into conclusions. Um, and I was not, I mean, Pizzagate wasn't true, yeah. but at the same time, um, there are like, 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 I guess, I guess the thing I don't like about conspiracy theories um, is like they, they sort of uh, um, take away um, from the real conspiracies going on. Yes, yes. And they yes, simplify yes. the real conspiracies going on. Yeah. And there are real conspiracies going on. Mm. Um, they're just not as simplistic as like a, a bunch of lizard people are like, yeah. you know, pulling the strings behind the scenes, <laughs> as cool as that might sound. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a good point. That like people like conspiracy theories kind of take away from the actual more complex conspiracy theory that's actually happening. The, there are real conspiracies out there yeah. that we're maybe not acknowledging or not dealing with, um, and people can on the internet um, who spend you know people who spend way too much time on the internet can be taken in by fake conspiracy theories, um, and I'm sympathetic to a lot of these people. Um, you know, so like, I guess one of the, so in my like political trajectory, I guess one of the, um, uh, a moment where I was like diverging from a, like my family and from a lot of my like liberal friends was when I was, um, acknowledging Trump, you know, was a symptom rather than a, like the problem. He was yeah. a symptom of 
uh, the system breaking down rather than the cause of the system breaking down. Yes. Um, and he, he needed to be put like the, the, the threat he was, you know, he posed needed to be put into perspective and it wasn't, you know, Oh, Hitler, it wasn't Hitler rising to power in the United States. It wasn't going to be, you know, a total calamity. Um, even if it was, even if I, you know, despise the man and do consider him a problem of sorts. Um, but people, I mean, Trump derangement syndrome, I think is a real thing. Yeah. Um, and people were like, Oh my God, it's the end of the American Republic as we know it. Um, and I think people definitely overreacted about him. Oh, they, I mean, per, the, the, the left reacted, overreacted um, in the extreme. And I think it's, the, yeah. it's to the left shame. Um, yeah. He's like, I mean, like, sure, the, the things that he said were pretty bad. But as far as like what he did wasn't like that bad. Um, at, at least it definitely wasn't cataclysmic and some of the things that he did like he like he was the one who started pulling out the troops um so like so i've heard people say uh i've heard people disagree with him when he's pulling out the troops and then praise biden for pulling out the rest of the troops it was like okay dude like you completely just did a 360 because the guy you like just did what the other guy didn't do i mean i'm definitely not in support of trump at all um and i don't really agree with his policies like any of his policies except for maybe when he was pulling out the troops but and i didn't really think that he handled covid like super well um but as far as him being like a terrible president i don't really think he was that bad I mean, I think someone said he he governed the way Marco Rubio would probably have governed. I mean, yeah. he was basically a standard Republican politician with a potty mouth. Yeah. Um, and what the damage he did um, really was more to like the 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 norms surrounding politics. Yes. Um, and so basically, what happened was, and I don't think he did this deliberately. I think he did this because he's a moron. But yeah, he basically pulled like. <laughs> he pulled the wool from everyone, you know, away from everyone's eyes and yeah. kind of just showed how much of a sham and how much of a, you know, a theater uh, elections are and politics is. Yes. Um, and so it's like, I, I think that's, maybe this almost sounds like a conspiracy, but that might be why like he was so despised by the Democrats because he was showing um, how terrible the system you know how terrible the system is or he was showing how the system wasn't functioning he was showing yeah. how republicans and democrats aren't um you know we're they're not doing what they should be doing if we believe you know in the idea of the of a government representing the people yeah um i don't think he was ever really going to represent the people either but in the course of claiming he was going to represent the people he showed that the people are not being represented in the slightest and yeah, so I, mean, I think that's more why people are so ups- like the, the, the Republicans and Democrats are so upset with him because he, they, they, they lost uh, a degree of credibility and legitimacy when Trump um, took office and after Trump left office. And people never don't really view politics in the same way anymore, because um, kind of with Obama, I'm going on a bit of a rant, so I apologize, but no, kind no, of like with Obama. 
um you know we could like because obama's an, an, a well-spoken gentleman you know he's uh ivy league educated um even i mean he's obviously very intelligent um we could like kind of tune out of politics because like oh it's you know look we have this elegant figure you know this elegant figure this this guy who like was born into a you know an average family an african-american gentleman um on top of that who like rose to the yeah. top you know a, 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 a typical um story of like how meritocracy should work um we can so we could like tune out of politics and be like oh this is a like, like obama gave a veneer of respectability to um american politics and yes. to washington um and trump took that away um so yeah because it was just this super rich guy that had everything handed to him that became president and it was just kind of um it it was kind of just like i could see how some politicians it well at least democrat politicians would feel almost as if they got spat on or something with him winning like <laughs> especially people who say like worked their whole lives to try to uh people who were actually self-made who built themselves up to try to get to that point like they'd probably feel kind of insulted by him winning the presidency and especially uh, you're right in the sense that he kind of exposed um, how the system is broken by winning the office. Cause like someone like him who speaks like him, like with like such a vulgar sort of unpresidential way can become president. It's kind of, it, it's kind of like what, like this super rich guy who said, uh, it, it just grab her by the pussy became the president of the United States. Like that's just like, like what the hell? Um, that's just weird, you know? Well, and it's sort of funny to me, like people don't talk about how like the Republican party did everything they could to like prevent him from winning the primary. Yeah. And they just like utterly failed. Like the Republican establishment, they didn't want, like they eventually they accepted Trump won and they like, you know, fell in line because um, I think that's, in many ways, I guess I would say Republicans might be better at playing politics than the Democrats. Um, they're at least yeah. more tactful about it sometimes. So they fell in line when he was um, successful, but they, you know, tried to make sure they, they did everything they could to prevent him from being, from winning the primary and they failed. And that's just like, it's so hilarious to me. Um yeah, well, I mean, think about how many people also just voted for him just because they were tired of, because um, I'm in a sense, uh, like everything in politics feels like this sham, right? It feels like everyone's lying to you. It feels like everyone's um, kind of being like deceiving about it. And when someone goes up there, um, like after you've felt like you've been lied to for years, like maybe your whole life. Um, and then someone goes up there, then they have like some potty mouth or whatever. Then they talk like, as if, um, like none of the cam or whatever mattered, then like that person might feel appealing to you, especially because they're like, not a politician. Um, someone who's not a politician would be appealing to someone who feels like they've been lied to by politicians their whole life. Um, 
and like that's why he grew that's why it was so popular um that's why people liked him so much not it had nothing to do with what he was going to do for the country uh it, it it was everything about him not being them not being the your standard politician um not being some like guy who went to harvard and law school who thinks that he's better than you i mean obviously trump thinks that he's better than everyone <laughs> but but you know he wasn't a um some dude from academia or whatever right well and i think what what really sort of interests me about american politics um is how um it, like the, the the degeneration that i i'm seeing is like the most interesting part because yeah i would basically describe the, the system of government here as an oligarchy with democratic tendencies yes um be- definitely because i i think broadly speaking the oligarchs do keep a firm grasp on power um but there's still that tinge of democrat of of democracy left that hasn't been taken away um and so that that that, that, it's weird it's almost like trump's election shows the 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 democrat the 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 democratic tendencies still left in the system yeah even if you don't like trump it shows that someone who's not uh just a standard republican or democratic politician can get into the get into that you know position of yes. power and can do so with the people's support I, I will say because he's also super rich and rich people already control the world more than politicians i would say that it, it also just goes it also just exposes the oligarchy even more no, no i think i i think i would agree i think those i think those two positions aren't necessarily mutually exclusive yes yes um, they aren't they aren't at all I'm kind of siding on both sides where like he kind of. um... Or or Bernie Sanders. I mean, Bernie Sanders, he didn't like he didn't make it to the primary or the the presidency like Trump did, but he got damn near close. (laughs) And so I I guess like, I don't know, I I feel like the will of the people to use a cliche phrase isn't entirely um, like like, like popular activism or, or the. It isn't um, entirely a waste of time, no. given the the current conditions. We're we're not. I mean, is it, it isn't North Korea really, where basically all popular activism is well, basically. Impo- I mean, it's impossible. Crushed. And the the government has a total grip on um, uh, 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 the reins of power. Um, yeah. I mean, well, I don't know. Uh, this is sort of, I guess, I'm thinking out loud here, but. Um, I don't know which like, or here's sort of, I guess I'll ask you like a question and you could, we can like extrapolate on it if, if we want, but sure. What do you think about like, um, I guess where power lies, like in a democracy or in a Republic, do you see the power as like still totally in the hands of the oligarchy or the government, but they like disguise it better. So like, do you see the U S North Korea basically powers in the same hands, but the, the U.S. government is more crafty about it and they make it look like the people's power is what's important, even though it's not? Or do you actually think in the in the democracies we see nowadays, the people actually have power? Um, I kind of go back and forth on this question, so I'm curious if you have any opinions. Yeah. Um, 
Well, a friend of mine, uh, he says that democracy is two wolves and a sheep fighting over what's for dinner. (laughs) So in a sense, I think he's very right. Because with this bipartisan system that we have in the United States, uh, well, you hear the phrase divide and conquer, right? Mm -hmm. If you can divide people, then you can control them very easily, very, very, very easily, right? Um, But I'm also not one to say that we don't have any power as citizens, Um, because I think power can be reflected in many different ways. Uh, Because in a sense, the slaves have power over their masters. Why? Because the masters rely on their slaves in order to be masters, right? So in that sense, they're dependent on having slaves to be masters. And slaves are dependent on masters to have masters, right? And often to live. They're dependent on their masters for many things, Um, in that sense, uh, Kim Jong-un would be completely powerless without all the people in North Korea, right? And in that sense, mm-hmm. he gets all of his power from the people of North Korea. And of course, they're all slaves to the government and they have no power or say in how the government runs or operates because they're brainwashed 24-7. But in a, a very real sense, they do have a certain kind of power um, over Kim Jong-un. In a sense, they perpetuate the system uh, as it goes on, right? Uh, Not saying that they actually have any power, but they have power in a different way. And it's not a good way. It sucks. It's like slave power, right? There's slave power and there's master power. Uh, And I'm using power in the sense where like we're all dependent on something else in a certain way. Mm -hmm. But uh in like one way you're kind of dominated and you're forced to be, to be dependent on that. And another way you're not forced to be dependent on something like slaves are forced to be dependent on their masters, but masters are not forced to be dependent on their slaves. Right. Um, And also masters have more options. They they're dependent on more things. And because they're dependent on more things, they, or at least they have more options to choose from, to gain their power from. And because they have more options to choose from, to gain their power from, they are in control and they're masters and they have more power than the slave does because the slave is forced to be dependent on one thing for food and sustenance and everything like that. They're forced to depend on their master or their, or here in America, we're forced to depend on capitalism. We're forced to depend on our jobs for money. We're forced to depend on work. We're forced to depend on our family. And we're forced to depend on all of these things, but we're definitely forced to depend on way less things than the people of North Korea, right? Mm. And because of that, we have more power over ourselves because we have more things. We have more choices, right? Our choices aren't as limited as the people from North Korea. And with uh, more choices available to us, we have more freedom. And, and because we have more freedom, we're more so masters over ourselves than slaves of the world, slaves of the herd, or slaves of whatever, right? Slaves of whatever ideology, because we have more choices and we have uh, more things uh, that we can choose from to do with our time or to do with 
like what we do as human beings. Um, sorry, I just went on a super long tangent, but essentially it comes down to how many choices you have. And as people of the United States of America, we have far more choices than uh, people from North Korea. Yeah, no, I think that's a good, um, that's a very good way of looking at it. Um, and it also makes one sort of, I guess, well, I guess a, a question that, you know, pervades probably the history of political philosophy is um, uh, individualism versus collectivism, or like the freedom of, you know, any one person to do something versus the, um, uh, 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 the community's, um, you know, community's cohesion yeah. or the community's safety. Um, you know, how, how much should we value the, uh, a community's um, autonomy or sovereignty? And how much should we view the individual sovereignty if we want to use like enlightenment um, yes. type hey, language that the, the founding fathers used? Um, and I remember, so something I said, and I think it was in the uh, podcast Matt and I did on, on Godwin um, as a very educational podcast, mostly because we could barely communicate. Um, and like the, the, the podcasts, I think that are most um, educational for the audience are the ones that are like the most grueling to um, put to, to, to put together or like the, the most difficult yeah. conversations are like the most uh, uh, rewarding in the end, actually. But yeah. I, I said in that po podcast on Godwin to Matt um, that uh, society is not based on consent. <laughs> yeah. Because my friend Matt is an anarcho-capitalist, um, if anyone hasn't doesn't know. Um, and, you know, one of the reasons I guess I'm just not convinced of that, that, that anarcho-capitalism is a good ideology is I guess the ANCAPs want to believe in total freedom for the individual, like total sovereignty for the individual. That's like the best um, form of social relations. And that's the one that's most um, desirable. And, and that's the one we should be aiming for. And I guess I'm sort of of the position and maybe this is Hobbesian. I don't know. Um, I might call it something else. Uh, Matt calls it Hobbesian, but um, of the idea that uh, uh, the, the individual isn't really entirely um you, you can't have a system of entire so of, of, of like uh individual sovereignty um th th that's based purely on individual sovereignty i mean i think i still believe in you know freedom whatever that word means and i still want to have like conversations with people and think about what true freedom is or what desirable freedom is um i don't believe in just total like mob rule or just total um uh, uh, subservience to the collective um and in my personal life i'm more of a individualist um yeah but I, I just i guess and i don't know if this is like my own intuitions misleading me philosophically but i don't feel like free i guess in the way that like an anarchist feels free um i feel like there are things beyond me that um, prevent me from being an entirely sovereign being. And I guess I'm okay with that. Um, I don't really necessarily feel tension with that. Um, if that makes sense. 
Uh, no, that makes perfect sense. And my thoughts on um, anarchism and or like anarcho-capitalism is that there's always going to be people who want less choices, right? There's always going to be people who say that they want freedom, but in reality, they want someone to tell them what to do or tell them what to believe or someone that can just make their lives easier, someone that they can be dependent upon for like support, for orders, and to know how to survive. And there's also always going to be people who want more choices and people who want to tell others what to do. And because of that, this like anarchism just would never actually work. Because even tribes have a structure, even tribes have leaders and they have people who follow. And although it's like a lot more democratic than what we do, um, just like naturally people can't, everyone can't be free because some people don't want to be free and some people really want to be free. And some people want to tell others what they should do. And some people don't want to do that. And some people want to listen to what others tell them to do. So I don't know, that's my take on it. Yeah, I don't know if any like psychologists have kind of studied um, like, like there's obviously a, a connection between um, the, the human mind and how it's constructed yeah. and our like political reality um, and social, yes. you know, hierarchy, <laughs> social structures. Um, and I'd be kind of curious, like if any psychologists have thought about um, both the anarchist mentality and like, you know, why an anarchist uh collective would or would not function due to you know i guess human nature i don't know if anyone's done any like any research or, or thought into that but that would be like an interesting question to examine as a psychologist yes yes it would and so like my thing is like why do we have to just be an anarchist why do we have to be communists why do we have to be a capitalist why do we have to be a uh someone who likes democracy or someone who likes a republic or someone who likes a dictatorship? Why can't we like mix all these ideas together into something that works for everyone or at least works for some people in some place and some people in another place. Right. I mean, I think I'm like, when it comes to, I guess, social structure, I don't know. I, I think my politics, and this is another buzzword, which yeah reddit uh, redditors have debated long into the night yeah <laughs> i think i've become more postmodern in my politics okay in that i think politics i guess i used to think politics more as like truth like if i support this policy it's because it's a true like it's true it, it it's right it works yeah. um i guess well maybe true and works aren't necessarily they're not necessarily the same thing yeah but um I guess I've stopped really believing in necessarily truths in politics. Um, and I think politics is probably more historically contingent and, you know, related to environmental factors. Yeah. Um, then uh, 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 we, we might want to think. So like, I really don't think there's like um, one political, like one way for, to govern all of humanity. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think that's like, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about people wanting like easy answers with conspiracy theories. Yeah, it's like, yes, it's, yes. it's a nice idea to say, like, oh, if we just go communist, say, 
then all the yeah. pr- social problems will be solved. Or, oh, if we just let the free market decide for itself or, you yeah. know, oh, if we just uh, let the technocrats um, control everything yeah. and monitor our every movement. Um, like we, we could propose all kinds of ideas, but there's really not a catch-all uh, solution to social problems. Um, and it's like, depending on the circumstances, I may or may not support this policy or this form of government. Um, yeah. Like it's, it would, it isn't necessarily crazy. Like, um, so I mentioned to you, I'm reading, a uh, Peter Gay's the enlightenment and interpretation. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, m- many of the philosophes, uh, were for, um, enlightened despotism, right. That they, they were for, that they wanted a, a king or a monarch in general to be educated. Um, like basically they wanted the philosopher king that Plato yeah. was like preaching so fervently. And it's like back then when monarchies were so prevalent um, and the republics, I mean, I guess Geneva was sort of a kind of a pseudo republic. Then of course we had the founding of the U S which was maybe also a kind of republic kind of democracy. Um, but there was like the only game in town really was monarchy or oligarchy. Um, so it's, it's understandable if like the French philosophe said they want to try to educate their king because most yeah. people in France at the time were uneducated peasants working in the fields, dying probably very young. Um, and so I can understand why they wouldn't have been, um, you know, advocating for complete overthrow of the government of of the monarchy and a complete establishment of a direct democracy um it, now in retrospect like, like nowadays i don't think i'm not really for going back to a monarchy um but again this is like a his politics is historical um so well have you ever gone river rafting before I have not. So when you go river rafting, like whitewater rafting, you go on and there's a guide at the back and then everyone else is kind of uh, on the sides rowing. And the guide in the back, they tell you when to row, how much to row, what kind of rows to do, uh, when to duck, when to do everything on the boat, right? And because they do that, you're able to get from point A to point B safely and in a very fun way, right? If there wasn't a leader there and there was just a bunch of idiots going on a raft um, (laughs) trying to go and try to coordinate themselves, then you'd crash and die probably. Um, You need that raft guide in order to get you going in in that scenario, right? But if you're all just with your friends hanging out, drinking beers or whatever, you don't really need a leader to be like, guys, you need to drink your beers like this, right? Because <laughs> like th- that situation doesn't require a leader, right? Because there are just some situations that require certain kinds of government and some that don't. In a drinking scenario, you, you really just need a democracy unless there's one sober person and everyone's drunk and they're all starting to do something stupid, right? And then it can turn into a totalitarian uh, dictatorship hopefully because that sober person is going to tell everyone not to do the stupid thing that they're going to do so I mean, that's kind of my mm-hmm. thoughts on the matter no i think i i think i agree 
I don't have much to add in that regard. <laughs> yeah, there's just situ- there's like like the thing is we always want like it's what you're saying about the conspiracy theory, like this conspiracy theory or this ideology or whatever it might work in this scenario, but it's not going to work in this scenario. So I don't know. I was going to ask you (laughs) kind of a weird question, but I wanted to ask your opinion on it. So have you seen any of the Avenger movies? Um, I've only seen the, I think the, the first one. The first one. So there's this guy named Thanos, right? And I don't know if you've heard the plot line at all, but in Endgame, he goes and he gets all the Infinity Rings and then he wipes out half of all the intelligent life in the universe. Um, just 50% of everyone because in his civilization there was overpopulation and people were starving and like a bunch of people were dying and suffering so he thought it was a good idea to wipe out half of the population in the whole world right Um, and he did this because he thought in the long term this would help all of life survive right because there would be more resources for everyone to have uh and there wouldn't be overpopulation and there wouldn't be starvation etc cetera, etc cetera. um and in a sense he was thinking in a totally rational way it makes perfect sense yeah it would help everyone out in the long run if 50 percent of all people died um he's totally correct but the good in us, or at least the feeling within us want to say, well, no, because I love my mom. I love my dad. I love my family. I love my friends. And I love living this life right now as well. And I don't want 50% of people to die. I don't want 50% of everyone I know to die right now because I love them and I know them and they're here right now. And I don't really care about my great, great, great grandchildren at all because they're imaginary and they don't exist. Um, so I wanted to know your opinion on that whole scenario as far as it goes with like COVID and everything. Um, because like in reality, we are overpopulated as a species, like severely overpopulated, 7 billion people. That's just not sustainable at all. So in a sense, if more people died, that would be good for us in the long run. But at the same time, um, I don't want people to die. I don't want people I love to die. So I took precautions. I wear masks. I got the vaccine. I did all that stuff to protect the people I love because they're here right now. And I don't want them to die. And I don't want to die. So uh, that's kind of, it's like, what's your opinion on all that? Well, I'm sort of reminded, uh, I'm sort of reminded of, um, you know, the anarcho- uh, so the argument you put forward sort of reminds me of the anarcho-primitivist yeah. uh, school of thought, um, you know, base, which basically argues that industrial civilization is um, was a mistake. You know, it's an yeah. it's an evil. Um, well, and, and I guess most anarcho-primitivists would say it will eventually collapse, um, and that's a good thing because most people will like will die. 
Um, Most people will be wiped out. They won't be able to survive the, you know, uh, 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 in the wild. Um, But the um, uh, uh, the people that do survive in the wild will have a better life um, because the hunter gatherer, um, you know, type of uh, uh, the the, the hunter gatherer um, life is, you know, superior, uh, more enjoyable um, than you know, the life we have now. Um, I mean, and I guess I, I can't say I'm, I can't really, I guess I'm sort of in your camp. I, I can't really advocate, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say, oh yeah, I think we should do this. That's going to, you know, wipe off, wipe out 50% of the population yeah. on earth. So the remaining 50% has a great life. Um, well, that's a social contract theory in action, right? Because Sure, like, I wouldn't really care if, like, 50% of everyone else, like, other than the people that I love die. Um, but, but at the same time, because I don't care about that, then that gives other people the right to not care about the people I love. So that means I have to care about everyone. I mean, I, I, at, at some point, uh, I, I think at some point we're going to reach... Um, the like overpopulation is going to become even more of a problem than it is now. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I worry, like I, 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 um, not too long ago, I went to like a film festival, um, regarding, um, it was like an environmentalist film festival. Um, and it was very interesting. Um, I, I think we're facing, oh, well, this is, I guess everyone's saying this nowadays. So this is the cliche part of the podcast, but I think we are facing certain ecological um issues that need to be resolved i don't necessarily think it's like i don't think that's exist- cliche man <laughs> just i don't like necessarily true. think it's existential or like oh we're all gonna die you yeah. know tomorrow um or we're all gonna die in 10 years like i think aoc said in some interview um but i i, I think there are issues with you know industrialization there are issues with um uh, uh fossil fuels they're they're just yeah there are issues. I mean, we talked about overpopulation. Um, cl- I mean, just a changing climate overall, um, which people thought like, um, like I think climatologists for a long time, they sort of thought the earth was a, uh, 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 it corrected itself and it didn't yeah. really change. Like the, the so the kind of idea, it, it, the predominant idea in climate science for a while was, well, the climate is basically been the same for most of uh, the planet's history and mm. it, it it like if there's any like change in the climate it kind of goes back to equilibrium yeah um and then there was some like i, I guess we got I, I got this from the adam curtis documentary that keegan introduced me to but there was some climatologist who like when he was doing his like his his daily um punching his numbers into a computer which he did in the daily he like accidentally made some mistakes and it showed that like a few changes to their to his climate model led to like a uh, uh, climate that had never been seen before on Earth. It, it yeah. led to it led to like um, just insane um, patterns that didn't really make sense with the model that then existed. Yeah. And so now I think we have a different model, which is well, no, if actually if you change this or that to the climate, it you who knows what kind of like consequences you're going to have, and it could be catastrophic. It could be non there could be no consequence you just you don't know that's why the 
that's why the everyone's always getting angry at the weathermen or the weather yeah uh, uh, you know because the weather's just so complex we can't really predict so this is really i guess this is my long-winded way of saying um i almost think the moral question isn't necessarily um that important because i think yeah this is i mean this is i guess sort of pessimistic but i but i end up i i kind of end up at the position where um you know we're gonna go through uh uh you know, the, 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 our, our environment on this planet is going to be changing drastically and it's probably going to lead to human cost and yeah, uh, the, the loss of human life. And I don't like, I'm not happy about that. I don't like praise it. I'm not yeah. excited about it, but, but it's, it's probably what's going to happen. And I guess if we want the people remaining to have a better life, if we want our children or grandchildren uh, to have a better life, then we have to change our relationship to um, nature and our relationship to yeah. um, just the planet uh, uh, as a whole. Yes. Um, yeah. And well, I mean, at the same time, though, um, there's really no stopping the inevitable uh, in a sense, because like, even if like um, we were to control our population and reduce it drastically, uh over time, something cataclysmic will still happen, right? Mm -hmm. And, like, if we were to just keep our overpopulation happening and cataclysmic stuff happen, the population would just naturally drop anyways. So um, that's kind of me playing devil's advocate on my argument earlier because, like, uh, in a sense, it doesn't really even matter because, like, something bad will happen. But like uh, at the same time, that's also what the smoker says when, oh, I don't need to stop smoking. I'm going to die anyways. Right. So I don't know. I mean, I think there's a well, there's a fine line in a lot of things, I suppose. But there's yeah. a fine line between um, uh, uh, accepting that certain things are beyond your control, but yeah. trying to deal with whatever is in your control. Yes. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think that I mean, as as pretentious and as um uh, uh, you know, as, um, ridiculous as some environmentalists can, can be in their rhetoric, um, and even in their policy prescriptions, I don't necessarily think that certain policies regarding climate and, and regarding energy, um, I don't necessarily think they're pointless. Um, but I also don't, I also think we can't control everything. Um, and to some degree, yeah. we're just going to have to adapt there will be things we'll just have to adapt to um or you know or, or they'll kill us <laughs> i mean yeah i, I think we want to try to make life i think we want to try to make life as pleasant for the people that currently exist and pleasant for our descendants but yes we can't do anything we can't do everything we can't play god um yeah. and you know I, I, like I, I think it's actually helpful um, I mean, you might not want to bring it up at a dinner at a dinner party, but yeah. I think it's helpful to like acknowledge that like there will come a time when humans don't exist anymore. Yes, <laughs> there will come they a time will. when we go extinct, and you know who knows what will what life will. I mean, I guess it's insects and parasites uh, yeah. <laughs> that will um, you know ha have the longest running, um, or that they'll be here long after we're gone. They'll have um, the last laugh for sure. Yes. And I, I, I sort of find that reassuring in a weird way. 
it's like I don't have to worry as much. Um, again, I'm not, I'm not saying don't try to maybe make the world a better place in the moment, but I don't yeah. have to worry about like, um, um, you know, uh, uh, a thousand years from now yeah. um, or ha- half a million years from now um, when probably the uh, we're all be gone and that that'll be that. <laughs> well, so I know that you've talked about Jordan Peterson on your podcast. And do you think uh, in a sense um, being better towards the environment and kind of advocating for environmental policies, do you think this is in a sense cleaning your own room? Mm. Um it's clever of you to ask it that way since I'm not a, a Peterson fan, but <laughs> yeah, I mean, neither am I, but um, like, I, I do like some of his ideas. He, he gets the last laugh on me occasionally. I have to say. Yeah. Um, and I think I, well, I made a joke once I said, the reason I don't like Peterson is I agree with him too much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I actually think that's, that's a good way to think about it. Um, think about our room as um in a larger on a larger scale than you know our actual room um this is why like so the first episode of beyond talking points matt and i talked about the debate between zizek and jordan peterson yeah um and this was like zizek's main point that i don't think peterson really answered um peter zizek was like um well uh you said you tell everyone to clean their room but if they're like the world around them is in turmoil <laughs> and they clean their room, that's really not going to do anything. Yeah. And so they need to like get engaged with the broader, uh, uh, you know, broader social issues and yeah. kind of clean their room that way. Whereas Peterson's basically taking the individualist approach of clean your room, deal with your own stuff and don't really worry about um, other things things or don't really try to change other things because um like this is his criticism of i guess what he sees is like the postmodern neo-marxist or he sees yeah. as the radical left he thinks they're a bunch of college students who think they yeah. can change the world <laughs> and they're so ignorant and if they just realize that they can barely control their own lives and they should um but but i, I just i can never really get behind that idea I mean, even if there are young people that like think they know more than they do, which is, I mean, that's just, that's always been the case of young people thinking they know more than they do. But um, I can't say it's like, I can't necessarily say to those young people, like, don't want, don't have that desire to change the world or don't go out there and try to change the world. Um, well, I think uh, Jordan Peterson is using this clean your own room analogy kind of cheaply um, because like if, if you're the kind of person that has cleaned your mind and you know what you want to do with your life, you know what you're passionate about and you go and seek that, that in a sense, like you've cleaned your room and you're ready to go and you're following your path. You're like, if you're an activist um, in something, or if you're a philosopher or a writer or like you're following your passion, you're following your dream. Then I think that in a sense is like, Hey, you cleaned your room and now you're ready to go out and play. Right. That makes sense. Um, I mean, I, I think like as, as long as one doesn't forget the broader social world, 
Yeah. Um, then I think you can say, you can say clean your room first, clean your like literal room first. Yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> clean your like, clean the, 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 the world up or cl- yeah. clean the, clean other people's rooms or clean the rooms of, for, you know, regarding other things. Um, you can well, start like, with yourself yeah. and then build out and then, and then you know, expand your um, uh, uh, reign of influence um, and expand your interests. Um, well, it's I like think, you can't I, love I think others like, until you love yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, maybe that's kind of a cliche, but uh, in a sense, it's like it's been very true for me, at least, because if you're like depressed, you can't really like help other people because you're sitting on the couch and you're kind of just being a, a super negative and you're affecting people in negative ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I think what I'm trying to get, I guess when in my criticisms of Peterson, I'm just trying to, to I'm, what I disagree with the most, I guess, is I sort of see him as um, I, I sort of see this underlying pessimism, you know, yeah. beneath his argument of clean your room. Yes. Um, I mean, this probably goes back to the fact that he um, is a Christian of sorts. Yeah. Well, um, he, he's very close minded. And he, so he's like, he's basically taken this idea of, and he wouldn't put it like this, but he's basically taken the idea of original sin to heart. Yes. And like, oh, you're, you're a wretched creature that would have been a Nazi in yeah. Nazi Germany. <laughs> and you would have like supported Stalin under the Soviet Union. And so he's basically saying you're a, and again, I'm, I'm sort of exaggerating his tone here or exaggerating yeah. his rhetoric, but he's basically saying you're a monster. And so you shouldn't want to change the world because if you try, you're going to like, you know, kill half a million people. Um, you're going to result yeah. in the death of half a million people with your crazy ideas about wanting to change the world. And I guess that just means maybe we have a different, he and I have a different view of human nature or we have a different view of um, activism, popular activism and um because I guess I'm just I don't accept that as like the final answer to um, the questions we're raising. Um, I think that's a defeatist attitude, which really doesn't help anybody. Um, so do you think George Peterson is kind of a nihilist in, in a sense? Um he's probably more of a nihilist than he wants to admit. Yeah. Um, just like he's more of a postmodernist than he wants to admit. Yeah. Um, I, I sort of, I mean, this is my take on Peterson. And so this is where I like get sort of Nietzschean, like, you, you know, how Nietzsche, uh, oh, yeah. you know, b- believed in um, analyzing the psychology of philosophers to get at what they were really thinking. Yes. Um, and I think some people, when they do that, it's sort of a cheap trick and they do it very sloppily. Yeah. Um, but if I may like put on my, you know, Freudian hat. Yeah. When I, and I look at Jordan Peterson's. Um, I, I think a lot of the issues he has um, with uh, a lot of the issues he gets involved in when it comes to politics um, I think are like issues that he's working out within himself yeah. or like it, like demons he's battling within himself and they're yeah. kind of getting um, the, the targets that they're getting projected 
uh, on to, uh, you know, um, idiotic leftists on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're getting, uh, you know, um, he, he's turning uh, other people, um, like other people are personifying whatever inner demons are in him. Um, and when, again, I'm not trying to be, I guess, overly disrespectful or like crude about it. Um, I mean, I don't think Jordan Peterson is going to listen to this podcast and then <laughs> email you like a hate message. So <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> I mean, it's also like, I don't know, take, when I talk, when he talks about like, so another like thing I, I don't always trust him on is when he talks yeah. about like relationships and like gender roles and whatnot. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think people, the people on the left, like equally exaggerate and Again, they call him a Nazi. They call him a yes. member of the alt-right, a bunch of nonsense. Um, but, like, his attitude towards, like, masculinity. Um, yeah. I sort of see, I, I sort of feel like he's, like, he secretly worries he's not masculine enough. And so, like, he's, yeah. like, preaching this, like, you know, idea of stoic, uh, of, of masculinity that, like, the Stoics, say, in ancient Greece... Um, or almost this like Spartan way of life for men. Um, yeah, sort of like he's, he's almost talking like that to compensate for, you know, the underlying fear that maybe I'm not like the warrior that I'm like preaching about. Um, uh, you know, again, I don't really, I can't read his mind. Um, and maybe I'm totally off, but that's sort of like my feel for Jordan Peterson. And I guess like my ultimate gripes with him. I don't like think he's a bad man. I don't like despise him or like think he's like the worst person <laughs> on the face of the planet. But I, I do think, um, uh, uh, and it sort of annoys me when people on the left, you know, turn in, turn him into a caricature and, and like, you know, put words in his mouth that he didn't say because um, it it means when I'm trying to criticize Jordan Peters and I have to like parse out the, the BS with, yeah. the, you know, legitimate criticisms of him. I have to, you know, say like, I don't think I, I like, I had to specify, like, I don't think he's a Nazi um, because yeah. people on the internet will literally say, Oh, Jordan Peterson is a Nazi or yeah, like, Oh, G- Jordan Peterson's a raging misogynist. And I yeah. just like have to bat away these silly claims. And then I can get to the, the, actual you know reason why i think his yes. work isn't as uh, uh uh great as some people think it is um and i think i understand and i'm i think i understand why his work is so popular and i think he probably is um helping some young men who are like really struggling right now in this culture in this day and age but at the same time i think he's like kind of become a cult-like figure um yes, a lot of public intellectuals uh, this this is a you know i think a lot of public intellectuals end up becoming uh, uh cult-like figures yeah. like from their fan base they have their heyday um and then they kind of like go away and people like stop talking about them it's like the new atheists like i was very influenced by the new atheists when i was a teenager yeah. and i was like i consider them like a, a, a very important part of my intellectual development yeah um Cause I do think the first, uh, I do think the, um, 
the, 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 the most important um, thing philosophy can do for you, at least when you're first studying philosophy, is to rid you of superstitions. Yes. Uh, and so the first superstition you sort of have to rid yourself of is the, the religious impulse. Yes. Um, and so, you know, but, but no one, you know, the, the, the new atheists had, the hair, had their heyday, and now we don't talk about them anymore. Now we talk about other things. Um, yes. So, which I think it'll probably happen to Jordan Peterson too. It's like he has having his heyday right now, both his critics, you know, he, he's most lauded and criticized intellectual right now or whatever. And then someone else will come along and people will forget about Jordan Peterson. And, you know, this is the way of the world. Um, well, yeah, that was I a mean, very that's... long-winded answer to your question, but there you go. <laughs> no, it was a good one. I mean, that's kind of what, um, I know I said I wanted to take a break from Nietzsche when I was talking to you, but I just had to say this, uh, that's kind of what Nietzsche is talking about when he said that God is dead, right? Um, like all of our ideals from the past, they, they eventually die and are replaced with something else, right? Um, like God died and then uh, the new atheists came to be, right? Uh, and they had kind of the same closed-minded arguments as with like God, right? Because I remember I was listening to your, your nihilist podcast with a uh, um matt you guys were talking about how like why would the universe be any like any more meaningful if there was a god right because a lot of times the argument um against there being a god is that oh or like the argument for the universe being meaningless is that there is no god but it's kind of like a faulty argument because like why would it be any more meaningful with a god right (laughs) so um uh, with that said, like, yeah, all these movements just come and go. And a lot of times they have a bunch of bullshit, like, in them. But there's definitely some good ideas that you can get out of them. Well, and actually, the, um, if I may, uh, I guess, make another few comments on the New Atheist for a second. The, yes, please. The second episode of my solo podcast yeah. was actually just me reading um, an essay I wrote um at some point matt and i are like we're thinking about maybe like writing some essays on some broadly political or philosophical topics and maybe like cool. publishing self-publishing a book or something that's a long way away obviously but um i wrote it f- for you know for a potential book perhaps in the future i wrote an essay cool um on religion and uh so yeah it's the second episode of my the philosopher's guide to the apocalypse and the, but the essay was titled and the episode is titled how the new atheists paid for our sins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I called it that because um, I sort of, uh, I, I saw like a place for the new atheists, but um, it, at least, uh, it, you know, in, in like their, in public discourse and I saw in, in my own life, obviously. Um, yeah. And, and I think that place was, um, I mean, it was post 9-11, right? So there was, like, I think a lot of, like, um, people having silly conversations about faith. And, like, I mean, yes. another, like, old, you know, debate raging on and on the political sides of YouTube in the 2010s was, like, the regressive left's opinion on Islam, right? So, like, the new, the new atheists thought many people were too soft on Islam. Yes. But the people, other people thought the new atheists were, were like, Islamophobic. Um, yeah. That was another time when i like diverged from the typical leftist positions because i didn't think the 
new atheists were Islamophobic, nor do I uh, currently think they were Islamophobic. Yeah. Um, but so the new atheists come, came along in a time where like religion became a more prominent, like conversational piece. Yeah. And people were asking fundamental questions about, um, you know, the role of faith in um, a person's life and the role in faith in politics um, and government um, and sort of like their like single mindedness, say, and, or their like um, simplistic arguments were like what was needed maybe in the moment to like fight a lot of stupidity and, and ignorance yeah. on the one hand. Um, and they like opened up a lot of uh, uh, doors for, you know, th- their audience, for their listeners. Yeah. Um, and I think people who, um, you know, and, and when you open doors for people, they can like move past you or decide you were yes. wrong or like, uh, you know, gain a deeper understanding. Um, so like, I think now um, what I try to like, uh, show in that essay um, is the, I, I think my position has deepened, my, like my position on religion and my my opinions of, on religion have deepened since my yes. like new atheist phase. And now yes. I like disagree with the new atheists more, but um, well, because I needed well, them, I needed them to like yeah. get me thinking about religion um, and get me like, get, give me that critical mentality towards religion um, before I could like move past them. Yeah. <laughs> so the reason they paid for our sins is we can like now look back and be like, Oh, these silly new atheists with their silly arguments. Ha 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 ha. Yeah. Um, but you know, maybe we, they're the reason we could do that is because the new atheists were willing to put forward those arguments and yes. willing to be disagreeable, um, on an issue, which even today people are still, <laughs> unwilling to be disagreeable about you know that's why they say never talk about politics and religion in public (laughs) yeah well they like brought people out of um like believing things that just didn't have like any like proof right they they brought people out of decades centuries of being like proselytized into a religion or indoctrinated into a religion and believing that like adulterators should be stoned to death or whatever. <laughs> so um, like in a way that's good, but I'm sure, uh, don't you think or, like, were you already thinking the thoughts of the new atheists before you were introduced to them? Um, but before I was introduced to new atheists, I really didn't think much at all about religion. Um so that they were really my introduction. Well, I say it's not entirely true. I take that back. Um, yeah. When I was in the seventh grade, I had a like world civ class. Yeah. Um, and this was about the same time when I was like introduced to the new atheist. So I had this teacher in school who was like going over the core tenets of the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, yeah. explaining their history, um, you know, explaining the various opinions within these traditions um and that's i think where my interest in religion started and then i started you know got exposed to the new atheists um so it was sort of like you know uh uh the uh, a main a a standard curriculum and how they would like portray religion versus like the more polemical way uh uh you know um arguments the new atheists are putting forward yes um and so 
that was, I guess those two things together were like my first, uh, uh, they were my first exposures um, to religion and religious criticism because I wasn't raised um, in a religious family and, and people when I was a yeah, little kid, was like, I. no one ever talked to me really. No one barely talked to me. Um, pe- people barely talked to me about religion when I was a kid. Like it just didn't. Yeah. And that, that maybe that, maybe that's like, and again, if we want to get like psychoanalytic about it, maybe that's why I'm not religious now. Right. Cause people yeah. didn't tell me when I was six that I was like the son, you know, uh, uh, that Jesus died for my sins. I mean, yeah. I got this from the culture. Yeah. Um, and another thing I mentioned in the essay was I actually remember, I think I was like eight or nine and I like went to my mom crying one day cause I was like worried I was going to go to hell. <laughs> yeah. My family had never told me I was going to go to hell. My family barely talked to me about it, but I just like got from the culture, they asked this idea yeah. of hell. And then I got scared like, Oh no, what if I'm going to hell? Um, yeah. So it's, I mean, you can't get away from religion, even if in a non-religious household. Um, but I, I was barely exposed to it until I started learning about it through school and on my own. Yes. So I actually got to head out here in a minute because I got to work super early tomorrow. But uh, I wanted to ask you one more question just before you go. Sure. You're a cool guy. You're inquisitive. You're academic. So like, what's your, so what do you think is kind of your purpose in life? Like, what have you made out to be your goal or what do you want out of life? Um, kind of a personal question, but you don't have to answer it. You don't want to. Yeah, no, no, I don't, I don't mind. <laughs> um, I don't mind answering it in the slightest. Um, I mean, I think our perp, like, probably my answer to that question will change over time. So I'm like almost, I'll be turning 22, um, in about, uh, over, over a week, um, be turning 22 on the 21st of this month. Um, that's my friend's birthday. Ooh, nice. It's also the birthday of, um, uh, 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 Kim Kardashian, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Well, shoot. Um, (laughs) So we're in, I'm in good company, but yeah. So I, I, what I was going to say was my answer to this question will probably change over time because yeah. we always change as we grow and um, have more life experience. But I've always, um, so I guess I'll answer it like this. Um, people uh, uh, like Socrates, one of his famous lines is, um, well, Socrates slash Plato, I guess, depending on how you want to think about it. The unexamined yes. life is not worth living. Um, but I think I would want to like rephrase that and say, I am, I am un, like able to live the unexamined life. Yes. Um, so like whatever, so it, that's a little less prescriptive and a little more personal, but like whatever, however my mind is constructed and however like I think about things, um, I am unable to just like accept, you know, uh, authority from, the church or accept authority from the state. Um, I've always been like, you know, the kind of person that asks um, a million questions um, and wants to know how things work. Um, And I've always been interested in a wide range of subjects like history and biology, psychology, politics, um, philosophy. Um, And so I guess right now, I think my purpose in life is to um, develop 
as a thinker, um, sort of figure out how to go, you know, live in this world as somebody who um, is always questioning everything. Um, Cause that's just, I'm, I'm at my most happy when I am like uh, grappling with very difficult ideas. Um, so I guess I'm almost like I'm giving a Nietzschean answer. I like the answer, the life I want is a one of struggle where I'm struggling with myself and struggling with yes. other people. And um, because I think it's only through that struggle that um, you learn about yourself, you learn about others and you learn about, um, uh, 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 you know, the, the universe and the human mind. So adventure, climbing that mountain, going through the labyrinth. That's kind of what you want. Yes. Um, cool. I accept that I am Sisyphus pushing a rock up a <laughs> mountain only to have it fall back down and have it to push it up another mountain. <laughs> that, cool, that is man. the life of the, that is the life of the mind. You're, you're never satisfied. It's never over. Yes. Um, but I wouldn't want it any other way. So. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. That was fun. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah. So, uh, so how can people reach you? Um, so you can, I have two podcasts, um, the beyond talking points, which you can find on YouTube or on any podcatcher. Same for my, that's the one I do with uh, Matt Keck, uh, my friend. And then the other one is a solo podcast, which you can also find on YouTube or any podcatcher, The Philosopher's Guide to the Apocalypse. Um, I haven't put out episodes for either in a while just because I've been so busy, but I plan on getting back into it. Um, so there'll be much more content in the future. Awesome. Well, that's it, folks. Thank you for listening. Examine your life a little bit if you want to. But even if you don't, I think I just hope you find something about life worth living regardless. So anyway, thank you for listening. Take it easy.